the word that the Lord's put on my heart for tonight, uh, he's been speaking this week, is on the fear of the Lord. And I love when he demonstrates what he wants to talk about. So I'm going to share some thoughts on the fear of the Lord and try to define something that's somewhat difficult. Um, but before I... Before I do that, I want to tell you why uh, I feel the Lord wants to talk about the fear of the Lord. Um, we've been in a unique season as a church for probably the last six months, and there's been a really strong emphasis on praise and worship, uh, like tonight. And I know that for some of you, uh, it's brand new. I know for some of you, I've heard things like, I, I haven't experienced anything like this in decades. Um, and it's been new, it's been uh, different, but we've really been emphasizing this, and even from the pulpit. And the reason for this is that I believe for the church to rise into her glory and fulfill her mandate on the earth, we have to be faithful. The church has to be built according to the heavenly blueprint of what Jesus thinks the church is. Uh, and Jesus is the wise master builder, meaning that Jesus has the blueprint of his house. And he tells us in Matthew 6 that, uh, that heaven is our pattern for life on earth, that we're to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. And that meaning heaven is the, the model, it's the blueprint, it's what we should order and structure our life upon as the people of God on this planet. Heaven has to be this living, breathing revelation that's informing every day of my life. I'm living into this vision of heaven. Uh, we see this in the life of Moses where he goes up the mountain and God gives him a blueprint and he he shows him a heavenly vision and he says, go back down and build my house according to the blueprint that you saw on the mountain. Um, Paul, all throughout his letters, he's telling us, I didn't receive this gospel from the agency of man, but I received it as a revelation from Jesus Christ. And when he stands before King Agrippa in the book of Acts, and he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul was being informed by a heavenly blueprint that came as a revelation of Jesus Christ. And John most explicitly offers us this living blueprint where he sees heaven and he offers us in the book of Revelation this vibrant picture of heaven as a city that is built around a throne of praise and worship. And I believe that that language is is really speaking to us that John's revelation is a three-dimensional picture of Jesus's prayer. And he's saying, here's the blueprint for life on earth. I'm raising up my people on earth to be the called out ones who learn to gather around a throne of praise and worship, what we're doing now, and then be scattered into the cities of the earth to redeem them and build them according to the city of heaven a city with no poverty and injustice and brokenness and disease, a holy city. 
but the city is built around a throne of praise and worship. And so why have we been camping around praise and worship? Because we're trying to build this house, this one local church, according to the blueprint of heaven, that, that we as River House would have a living vision, a living revelation of Revelation 4 and 5, this throne room worship, that we would be a people who actually embody Hebrews 4 when it says to boldly approach the throne of grace. We're, we're learning now, tonight, live. We're learning how to be discipled to enter into that throne room in the spirit. And it's a place of praise and worship. And the beautiful thing is that as we enter in the spirit and worship the Lord, we're actually cultivating an environment Tonight, we are cultivating an environment where somehow heaven and earth are touching. That's the church. Church, part of our identity is heaven and part of our identity is earth. Church is this divine portal that somehow God says, I want to break into the earth. And where I'm going to break in and culturize my people is when they gather in my name. And then I'm going to send you out from this throne into cities that are broken, but I'm not going to send you out broken. I'm going to send you out like I sent Isaiah, who saw the Lord, was touched with a coal, transformed, and then sent. We, we gather, we're learning to gather around the throne of glory. And when we gather and ascend in the spirit through praise and worship, we become transformed. We become touched. We become changed. And then we're scattered with something to offer our city. Heaven's the blueprint. This is why we're spending so much time talking about praise and worship. And uh, when you look at Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, you can start to see why we've been talking about what we've been talking about. There's a strong identity of a royal priesthood. There's, uh, we've, we've, there's an activity of worship, and we've been talking about Ruth Heflin's words that you praise until a spirit of worship comes, and you worship till the glory comes. And then when the glory comes, you just learn how to stand. But there's also an atmosphere. And tonight, what I, why I want to talk about the fear of the Lord is the fear of the Lord is very evident in this throne room uh, encounter, it's, it's very evident that there is a awe and wonder that's taking place around the throne of God. And I feel prompted from the Holy Spirit to, to uh, bring this topic to you tonight, um, which I think is a really important one. Um, Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12. Oh, I lost my, I lost my, it doesn't matter. Yes, I, I was right. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. 
for our God is a consuming fire. That word service would be the same word for ministry or worship. So let us learn to bring an acceptable ministry worship unto the Lord with awe, with a holy awe for our God is a consuming fire. This is New Testament language. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's, it's could be rightly described as awe and wonder. Uh, awe meaning terrible, terror-filled, uh, so, so inspiring that it scares you, you tremble and rejoice, it, it makes you shake a little bit. Uh, you could describe the fear of the Lord as an all-encompassing value. There's such value that you place upon uh, the object of this fear that you, you, it's the gold standard in your life. You, you literally tremble. You, you want to be close to God. You love what God loves. You like what God likes. You dislike what God dislikes. You hate what God hates. The fear of the Lord doesn't make you want to withdraw. It makes you want to be close. And it actually makes you afraid of ever doing anything or anything, even the accidentally that could cause separation because you tremble before him. You, you are so in awe of somebody that you just want to be close. You want to be, touch them. You want to be influenced by them. Um, a really uh, easy example that I think might help somebody here is, feels funny to say this in an environment like this, but it would be Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. <laughs> Kobe was 18 years old when he got into the NBA. Michael Jordan was in his last season, and Kobe Bryant had a fear of Michael Jordan. He wanted to be Michael Jordan. He wanted to look like him, talk like him sound like him, play like him, lead like him, be like him. There's literally stories where they were guarding each other's in games and Kobe's asking him for tips because Michael Jordan was the gold standard for Kobe Bryant's life. Anything he said influenced him. If he didn't like it, he didn't want to do it. If he said it, he, he wanted it. There are probably a lot of people that would have opinions for Kobe Bryant, but Michael Jordan's voice was the gold standard because he had a fear of Michael Jordan. He trembled, he, he wanted to be like him. This is what God is wanting to cultivate in our lives. This is what the fear of the Lord will do to us. It will give a trembling anticipation for getting to come before the presence of Jesus. This is why the angels will worship holy, holy, holy for all eternity. It's because they are consumed with a holy awe of who God is. Holy, holy, holy. I want to be close to you. I want to be like you. I want to be, this is the fear of the Lord. There's over 200 verses in scripture that explicitly share the benefits of the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It guards you from iniquity. It leads to blessing, riches, wealth. This is scripture upon scripture upon scripture that describe the benefits. But the heart posture is that God wants to fill us with the fear of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit 
in Isaiah when it talks about the sevenfold spirit of the Lord. It's the spirit of the fear of the Lord is one of the names of Holy Spirit. He is the fascination of God, the awe and wonder of God. Uh, the litmus test in our life that reveals our relationship or maybe the measure of the fear of the Lord that we walk in is our relationship with the conviction of Holy Spirit. So if you want to see a window into how the fear of the Lord, what your relationship is, is ask yourself, what is your relationship like with the conviction of Holy Spirit? Is his conviction or his promptings or impressions, are they suggestions or are they commands? Do you obey them? Do you partially obey them? Like I listen to Dave Ramsey a lot. He, he describes the people that kind of follow him as Ramsey-ish. Are you Holy Spirit-ish? Or is he the gold standard? How quickly do you obey him? What's the posture of your heart when you obey him? Are you eager or are you dragging your feet? Are you complaining or are you rejoicing? Right? This is giving a window to if you are consumed with the fear of the Lord. Like, are you, do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you like what he likes? Like, how much influence does he have over your heart? Conviction is a big deal. And what the Holy Spirit's looking for is obedience, full obedience. And obedience reward is the fear of the Lord. I, I believe that conviction in our lives is actually the felt presence of the fear of the Lord. You know, because conviction is awesome. It's terrifying, but it's beautiful. It kind of hurts, but it makes you feel loved. It makes you tremble a little bit, but it leads to rejoicing. And the Holy Spirit is sent from heaven to be the convictor of the church in what he's looking for as people that, that love his conviction, that yields to his conviction, that obey his conviction. Obedience doesn't always feel good, but it always creates good. Because every time we obey, when the conviction comes and we yield to it, we allow it to come in. Bless you, brother. When we yield to that cutting, we allow the conviction to get in and cultivate and transform and produce the fear of the Lord. God wants to so transform you and me that he can do our will. He wants to so produce an abundance of the fear of the Lord in our lives that he can literally do your will. Because you love what he loves. You value what he values. You like what he likes. You dislike what he dislikes. You hate what he hates. Jesus is looking for people with the fear of the Lord because God is a father who delights in generosity. He's benevolent to his core. And I believe that the eyes of the father are searching through the earth 
looking for hearts that are ripe with the fear of the Lord that he can give vent to the full nature of his goodness and generosity. God is a father that's longing to extravagantly pour out his benevolence upon the people that he loves. The entire book of Deuteronomy is God saying, please fear me. Please cling to me and love and value what I value so that my blessings can overtake you and I can make you a spectacle to the nations as I demonstrate my love upon the ones I love. But he says, if you don't, I can't. Because his, the vent of his nature would produce evil and bad if we don't have the fear of the Lord. The heart of God is searching for those that will yield and give a full obedience, obey the commands. This is to love the Lord. You obey his commands and his commands aren't burdensome, meaning you love his commands. You love his conviction. You yield to his conviction so that he can cultivate and grow the measure of the fear of the Lord in our lives so that we can come in alignment and the spigot can open. And God can give vent to his nature in our lives. <laughs> I want to be a man gripped by the fear of the Lord. I want to be gripped with all wonder of who this Jesus is. The star breather. The, the one who holds galaxies in his hand. Oh my. And that he wants to dwell here in Garden City tonight. <laughs> Oh, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. So I want to talk about two things tonight that I think the Holy Spirit's going to convict through. I think I'm just going to fertilize you all. And then his conviction is going to just spring up. I don't want to convict you. I'm not good at it. But the Holy Spirit is. So the first thing I want to talk about tonight is skepticism and slander. Uh, a couple verses to build a context. Uh, James 3 talks about the, the perfect tongue. It says that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It's small, but it's powerful. It says the tongue is small, but it's, it's a fire, and it can set a whole forest afire. It says a tongue is like a fountain, but James is writing it and says our, our mouth should be a fountain of only blessing because with it we bless and worship the Lord. But it's not always that way because there's also bitter water that comes from the fountain where we curse man made in his image. Philippians 2.14, Paul's writing and he gives this exhortation that we, the church, are to shine like lights. Some translations say stars. We're to shine like stars in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And it says right after this, to do all things, therefore, without complaining. Say complaining. Some translations say grumbling. Say grumble. God does not like grumbling. And then Peter 2, Peter 2.10, the same sentiment is also expressed multiple times in the book of Jude. He's talking about those who are defiled and walk by the flesh. And he says, they're people who despise authority. 
I believe that one of the great pitfalls of the flesh and the life of the people of God is the temptation to grumble against authority, which is actually the temptation to grumble against God himself. We are living in what people would call post-modernism, or some super philosophical people say post-postmodernism. It doesn't matter what you think. The point is this whole age of Western civilization that we find ourselves in is characterized among a few things, but primarily one of the most uh, significant marks of postmodernism is the severe distrust of authority. Uh, this is the water that we swim in culturally, so we don't even realize it. But if many of you, you'll start to actually hear this after tonight. You'll, you'll hear that the casual conversations of culture are breeding a culturally accepted skepticism. We've actually been indoctrinated and discipled as a culture that it's right and normal to be skeptical. Skepticism would even almost be a core value of postmodern culture because it's what we do to keep ourselves safe from authority. And it's understandable because of the pitfalls of leadership that we've all witnessed, the ugly, gory stories, both culturally with authoritarianism, poor, broken forms of leadership, in politics, the political sphere, the business, corporate sphere, um, but we also see this just as um, frequent within the, the spiritual world of the church, and we've seen the, the bad stories of the public, um, you know, big church pastors falling. Um, and then aside from all these big institutional uh, expressions of leadership, the home, uh, the home, the family, the marriage has been degraded, and divorce is uh, an expression of really poor leadership. That uh, the place that we're actually supposed to learn authority, you know, the percentages we've all seen them. So we're living in the breakdown, and then the 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 counter, the swing. Postmodern is the swing that all this authority is bad. And uh, it's understandable why uh, the woundings, the brokenness, and then, of course, social media uh, just makes it worse because now we can read all the gory details the next day. I'm sure that people like 100 years ago are thankful they led and made their mistakes 100 years ago, if you know what I mean. I actually question if there's more leadership failures today or if they're just more public because of media. Um, because if you read, read here, there's a lot of leadership mistakes. Amen. Oh, bless you, little one. So it's understandable, but this is what I want to say, is that this skepticism towards authority actually causes issues in our relationship with God. Because despite the prevalent and extreme, oftentimes extreme, broken expressions of leadership, God remains determined and even resolved with this whole human plan, meaning he's committed to operating through delegated authority, you and me. He made his decision at the beginning that I'm going to delegate authority to humans and I'm going to work with them and through them. And so if we have issues with authority, uh, we actually and ultimately have issues with God because all authority comes from God. 
And uh, we see this explicitly, you know, with the honoring of father and mother. It says nothing about father and mother's behavior or character or track record. It just says honor father and mother. And it will go well with you and you'll have a long life. Uh, the New Testament is explicitly clear that we're to honor and pray for civil authority. Um, I think a lot of times we read that and we're like, yeah, but that was, you know, back in the day. It wasn't the, you know, crazy left-wing liberals with their social agendas or the right-wing fundamentalist. Um, no, it was actually a lot worse. It was a Caesar who said explicitly he was God and you should worship me. And we're told we should honor and pray for them because God set them in authority. Even Jesus, when he stands before Pontius Pilate, says, you are in authority over me. And the only reason you are is because God puts you there. And Jesus actually submits to the leadership of God through Pontius Pilate because Pontius Pilate actually played a role in the eternal story of the lamb being slain on a cross. God is bigger than broken leadership. He actually uses it for his purposes. Honor authorities. And then uh, the word of God also tells us that we're to honor spiritual authorities. It actually says double honor to those who would be uh, elders that preach and teach the word. And the point trying to make in all of this is regardless of the flaws of leadership, those with the fear of the Lord will value and love what God loves. And God loves working through flawed people. God will never withdraw. He's made, he was so committed to working through people that it cost him the blood of Jesus. Because God said, I'm not going to step in and do it. I'm going to work through humanity. So God's committed to delegated authority. He's committed to using, yep, even the leaders in your life. So I believe that part of being a light, being a, a star that shines in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation is that we have to overcome the skepticism of the age. And God wants to disciple us from, skepticism, from skeptical to submitted. Because we can't be skeptical and submitted at the same time. Because skepticism is a form of distrust. Submission is a form of trust. We can't be skeptics and submitted simultaneously. We have to be one or the other. C.S. Lewis says there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch is being contested. And we're either skeptical and we're partnering with doubt, or we're believers and we're submitted and we trust the leadership of God through whatever form it wants to come. It's one way or the other. Skepticism, um, I want to be explicitly clear, it's not harmless. It's a very socially acceptable, especially within the church, it's a, it's a socially acceptable form of unbelief. Um, it's not good, it's not helpful, and it's not harmless. I believe that the guise of skepticism is that it's like a neutral, passive, harmless thing. But the truth is when you look at the Garden of Eden, the enemy came with skepticism, with doubt to Eve, and, and she doubted. Did, did God really say that you can't eat that food and you die? He's sowing doubt with her. You know, they, my mom was on the uh, 1990s parent train of like, put the fear of drugs and alcohol in your kids. You know what I'm talking about, all you 90s parents? 
She would tell us stories like somebody smoked weed one time and they died. And I remember having conversations. My mom was like, it's a gateway drug. I'm like, what does that mean? It opens the gate to other things. I was like, what are those things? I'm like eight years old, trembling. This is the truth with skepticism. It's a gateway drug. It, it, it maybe appears really neutral, but it opens the door to the demonic horde of slander and rebellion. Eve opens the door and starts to consider, yeah, is God really good? Did God really say that? Is he withholding? And then that doubt then firms and she moves in rebellion. Satan is the same. He does the same thing over and over. Numbers chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, Moses has just empowered a bunch of people. So there's change in the camp of Israel. Seventy new people are now empowered and prophesying. And I've heard it said, you know, have you heard Witham before? That whenever there's change in an environment, everybody goes to Witham. What's in it for me? There's a bunch of Witham in the camp of Israel. And Aaron and Miriam are getting Witham because it's like the power dynamics are changing. And the enemy comes in this time of change and she's, he starts sowing doubt. Is Moses the only one that hears from God? Is, is he lording authority over you? Is he keeping, are you missing out? You're, you're, you're losing something and you see the doubt and the doubt materializes. They come to Moses and they rebuke him with the same thing they were just pondering. Are you the only one that hears from the Lord? Are you really the Lord's anointed? You are just my brother. And God has to interject. And Miriam becomes leprous because their partnership with doubt opened the door to slander, criticism, and then rebellion. And Aaron, being the high priest over the priesthood, what we partner with, we actually empower. Four chapters later in number 16, we see the same thing manifesting in the camp of Israel with the 250 leaders of the Levites. Are you really the only ones that are anointed? We're all anointed. You see the evidence of doubt. They started doubting. Is this really the way? And it opened to critique and slander and then rebellion. Skepticism opens the door to slander and rebellion in our lives. It's a gateway drug. How do we overcome skepticism in our lives? We have to understand what skepticism is. And at its core, skepticism is self-protection, which means it's an agreement between fear and doubt. It means that we have a wound. Skepticism feels really powerful, but it actually shows that we're afraid. It shows that we're actually afraid of man and we're not afraid of God. That's what it means if you're skeptical. You're carrying pain and nobody wants to experience pain. So we're afraid of experiencing pain again. So the fear reaches out and says, hey, doubt, will you come over here and be my protector? And doubt says, yeah, just give me your authority. I'll form a filter over your life that nothing will be able to touch you there again. It keeps us safe, but it actually severs us from the grace that God wants to bring into our lives. Because broken leadership hurts us, but healthy leadership heals us. And if we will form this filter with doubt, doubt 
basically severs us from both bad or good leadership. And again, God is committed to this human thing. And we are living in the day, culturally, where what most leaders are relegated to is that leadership looks like a nice pat on the back. Good job. And if you ever do anything beyond that, so don't be controlling. Because I got my skepticism up and I've got eyes on you. That's the day of leadership that we live in. Hypersensitivity to anything that might be because we deep down we've been discipled. You distrust and you look with eyes of distrust, which is the opposite of honor, which actually severs the window of influence. Right? If you've ever had any exposure to the endurance athlete world, they'll tell you that when you hit your breaking point, like in a marathon, you're only about 60% of what you can actually give. And what good leaderships do are the people that will push and provoke you past the thresholds of what you think you can do into actually what you can become. And that is what God, God-empowered leadership does. It's, it's to watch over and nourish and push you. And part of good leadership is that it speaks to your blind spots and it tells you what you don't want to hear and, faith, and gives you faithful wounds. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But there's not a lot of capacity, culturally speaking, for good leadership because we've got this empowered doubt that's a filter. And any time anything that comes that we don't necessarily think is right, that filter starts to justify criticism, put down, slander, whatever, and then resistance. And the truth is we're not resisting man, we're resisting God because God wants to lead us through imperfect people. God needed Laban in, jo- in Jacob's story. God needed Potiphar in Joseph's story. God, God uses all things. And part of trusting God is that God is bigger than the flaws and the imperfections of the people that he puts in our life. And there are flaws and imperfections. I'm standing as a flawed one. But we want the leadership of God. Amen. Skepticism feels powerful, but it's actually a form of powerlessness. It's a fear of man. It's a stronghold of the fear of man. And I just want to exhort some of you that if you're being convicted of things that you have spoken against delegated authority in your life, you might have messes to clean up. You might be convicted tonight of things that sounded so wise and and critiquing, but they're really coming from a place of fear. They're coming from the wrong place. They're coming from doubt. They're, they're open to slander. You're speaking against the Lord's anointed. And I'm not saying me. I'm saying father and mother. I'm saying civil authorities. I'm saying any leader in your life. God isn't looking for grumblers and murmurers and complainers. He's looking for people that have a heart of honor, open funnel to what the Lord want to do. That doesn't mean there's not boundaries. That doesn't mean that there's a world of healthy relational dynamics. There is. But what it is saying is the spiritual reality is your heart clean and open before the Lord. If you're convicted, you can clean up your mess. I've had to clean up a lot of them over the years of where I criticized, slandered, distanced myself from people that the Lord wanted to use because, frankly, they challenged me and I didn't want to be challenged. Um... But if we break partnership with doubt, it's saying, I no longer want doubt as my protector. I'm ready to start trusting you to be my protector. It will expose probably tender places of pain. 
And I'm guessing that there's some of those in this room. And to those of you that have uh, poor leadership experiences, what I'm guessing is a large percentage of you. Um, I just want to say that you can trust the Holy Spirit. You can trust him to lead you to healing. Do not let yourself be defined by what happened to you or the mistakes that you made or the mistakes that other people made to you. Don't let that define you. We are not victims. We are overcomers. Be defined by, by the future that God has for you and let him mold you in the midst of the pain that you've walked. Let him form you into the type of leader that this generation needs. I could give you a whole laundry list of deep pain and rejection and, and hurt that I've experienced in my leadership journey of leaders in my life. But the truth is, I can also give you the whole story of the healing process and that I've continued to open and say, no, I will be led. I will be led, Lord. I don't want to be shut at all. We got to fight for that. Amen. All right. I know it's getting late. If, if you need to slip out, you can slip out. But I'm going to say one more thing. And this, this may be um, more convicting. Maybe not. Um, I want to talk about honoring the house of God. Uh, if To have the fear of the Lord would mean that we have supreme value for the house of God. Jesus said himself, um, you know, when, when, he, when he turned the tables over in the temple, they quoted the prophet who said, zeal for his house would consume him. Jesus was consumed with zeal for the house of God. As a 12-year-old, he stayed behind and said, didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? Jesus laid down his life and shed his blood that he could inaugurate the house of God on earth, this global temple called the church. So to have the fear of the Lord uh, would mean that we value the house of God the way that God values it. David was a man with the fear of the Lord because he valued the house of God the way that God valued the house of God. And, and I just want to, uh, just a couple quick things, just to kind of uh, maybe provoke you a little bit, is does your church attendance demonstrate the fear of the Lord? Um, does the timeliness that you, do you get on time? <laughs> You're not late to work. <laughs> We're not late to coffee meetings. Kobe wouldn't have been late for a meeting with Michael. Um, I'm not a legalist. I don't want you to do things because you're supposed to. I'm letting, using this to prompt is, do you have the fear of the Lord in you? Do you tremble when you come to the house of God? And then the, the last, is there reverence? Um, I'm not trying to call anybody out, but there's times where I will experience, I think, a little too casual. I think in the backlash of coming out of legalism, which so many have of maybe the generations prior, we've gone to this super casual where it's almost like we act like it's our house. Like your house, you take your shoes off, you kick your feet, and put it on the couch, you do whatever you want. It's your house, it's your rules. But I think we've forgotten sometimes this is his house. And, and if we're walking in and, you know, it's sometimes I'll, I'll hear chitter chatter in the middle of a service. I'm not going to rebuke you. The Lord will, <laughs> because it's his house. So I just, I just, I more want to provoke you is, is there reverence in the way that you both approach and then act when you come into the atmosphere of God's house, right? Because what we do here will spill over into our homes, into our private devotion times. Like, is there the fear of the Lord in the way you come before him? All right, and then this is the last thing, and this is, I really felt the Lord on this, so um, I love you, is, is do you tithe? 
If not, you don't fear God. Tithing, I just have a few quick things. Tithing is not Old Testament. It is eternal. I believe I could give you scriptural evidence to show that you'll be tithing in heaven. Because the principle is that the first 10% belongs to the house of the Lord. Cain and Abel tithed. No law. Adam and Eve were stewards in the garden. They weren't owners of the whole thing. They weren't allowed to touch that tree. There was fruit that was only for God. Tithing isn't old covenant. It's an eternal principle. Melchizedek, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek, who some scholars believe was Jesus Christ himself. And Hebrews 7, 8 says, mortal men receive tithes, but this, this eternal one received the tithe from Abraham. Meaning that when we tithe, there's actually a transaction in heaven because we are tithing to Jesus. This is Old Testament. This is New Testament. Ten in the scriptures is the number of testing. There were ten plagues in Egypt, ten commandments that tested obedience. There were ten tests of Israel's obedience in the wilderness. Jacob was tested ten times under Laban with the changing of his wages. Daniel was tested ten times by the Chaldeans when he changed his diet for ten days. He was tested. Uh, we tell the, the, the young adult showed, told the story of ten lepers were healed, but one came back to give thanks. There was a testing. Uh, the ten virgins in Scripture who were tested to see if they would trim their lamps. Ten is the number of testing throughout the Scripture. And God tests us with the ten percent. Will you tithe? Interestingly enough, not only does God test us with the tithe, it's the only place in Scripture that God says, test me. And I'm going to read you out of the book of Malachi. I think this is a profoundly powerful passage of Scripture. And I'm almost done. So if the kiddos are here, we love you. Jesus loves you. Just get on them, God. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the window of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground nor the vine in its field that when it casts its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a, a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. A few verses later, he says, I am the Lord, I don't change. I have a belief that Riverhouse is called by God to walk in financial miracles. Meaning that God is desiring to flood our city, our region, with, in, with exploits of his kindness and generosity. 
And I don't think that's just in the form of gifts. I think that's business enterprises. I think that is like God is desiring to, to extravagant, that we would walk in financial exploits because I actually believe that that's going to be the bridge that's going to translate the power of the worship here into the worship of our world. The tithe has the power to sanctify. God says, give the first and it will sanctify the whole lump. Jesus gave his firstborn son, Jesus, that it would sanctify and redeem the rest of humanity. When God says, give your first fruits, he's saying, you, if, 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 he's actually saying, this is how you sanctify your secular vocation. It won't be secular if you understand that 10%, the first fruits of your vocation in the marketplace are unto the house of the Lord. And therefore, everything you do is now sanctified and blessed. And again, there's no neutral ground in the universe. We're either sanctifying it and saying, I'm going to give you the first 10%, or we're walking outside of the Lord and saying, I'm going to do it my own way and wherever we put our first, which God says is cursed. Because if it's not in me, it's not life. I love you. I love you. I love you. I believe that we're called to walk in an extravagant realm of generosity, that there would be such overflow upon our finances as the people of God that it would literally spill into the streets of our city. But we will never see that if we aren't faithful with the tithe. If we don't pass the test, we'll never test the Lord so that he can cause wonders to flow through us. And this isn't about how much money's in the checkbook. This is about the heart. This is about the fear of the Lord that says, I love what you love, I like what you like, I hate what you hate, I dislike what you dislike. I'll end with this. If you don't believe what I'm saying, I want to encourage you to read Robert Morris's book, The Blessed Life. It will, it will be a, a stick of dynamite in any broken theology you have around the generosity of financial stewardship from God's perspective. So I just want to encourage you, read this. I, I literally think this is a living prophetic word for Riverhouse Church. Uh, I, I want this to be embodied in my life. So I'm going to leave it at that, and I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I thank you that your conviction is here. That Holy Spirit, you're so good at, at convicting. And I just bless my brothers and sisters to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to respond to the cutting of Holy Spirit tonight. Would you come and cultivate the fear of the Lord in this house? Jesus, would you transform us through obedience that we would start to value what you value and love what you love and, and begin to have an awe and wonder a holy awe and a holy wonder in relationship with you. I, I don't feel like I have to pray much. I feel like the Lord is, he'll take care of, of convicting. And if, if you are convicted I, and, and the Holy Spirit is maybe working on you, I just, I, I want to uh, maybe just to create a space for you to, to respond. And if you want to come forward, I actually want to invite you to come forward. There's something about um, coming and kneeling that is a submission 
to. And I have a sense that the Holy Spirit's probably convicting of some of you of messes that you need to clean up and places where you were a fountain of bitter water and you need to go make that right. Um, and, and perhaps that there's a breaking of, of doubt and you, you're saying, I don't want to be a skeptic anymore. And, um, and, and, and maybe with your finances, God is saying, will you finally trust me tonight? Will you trust me? Will you pass the test tonight? And I'm not, there's no uh, giving call. There's no, we didn't even do the tithe tonight. I'm not, I'm not really concerned about the money in Riverhouse's bank account. I'm really more concerned about us being the people that God's called us to be. And I just want to invite anybody that wants to respond to come forward as a, as a cry to God that says, I open up and I yield to your conviction. And I have a sense it's almost, the picture I have is it's like this is a big operating table and the Holy Spirit is going to cut and he's going to heal. And so if you need operation tonight, I'm just going to invite you to come forward and lay before the Lord. We can put the lights down low. We can put soft music on. Ministry team, if you want to just come and, and be helpers for the Holy Spirit tonight, I'll encourage you to float. And we're just going to, I want us even... I just would ask that maybe as you go, let's just, let's go quiet to protect this space and maybe put some soft music on just to kind of cover any noise. And if you want to go and mingle in the lobby, go mingle in the lobby, but let's just move out there silently unless the Lord's calling you forward. And so I just, I want to say, come forward, come and open up to the Lord. Open up to the surgeon of heaven and we just say, Holy Spirit, have your way. We thank you for what you're discipling us into as a people. And we bless it, God. We bless it. Don't break it. I know there's people that still need to come forward. There's some, I, I can sense a real strong resistance in you. I found that the stronger the resistance it's proceeding the greater the breakthrough. So if you really are fighting this right now, I just want to give you courage. You can do it. Come forward and come and lay before the Lord. Just give him space to move. Give him space to move. Give him space to move. I bless you, Holy Spirit. You are holy. You are holy. You are holy. You are the fear of the Lord. And I just say, come and be the spirit of the fear of the Lord in this house. Change us. Change us, Jesus. Change us. Wash us with the blood. Make us new. Make us redeemed. Make us transformed. We thank you. We thank you for a holy operation. We thank you for holy surgery. Surgery that has no side effects, just righteousness. Make us righteous, Lord. Make us righteous. For Jesus' sake we pray.